I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? with me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. During a glittering stage career that began in January 1962, David Warner was hailed as the Hamlet of his generation. He later played Falstaff and the title role of King Lear at the Chichester Festival Theatre. He also played Undershaft in the Broadway revival of Major Barbara in 2001. His wide-ranging film career has seen him work with Sidney Lumet, Sam Peckinpah, Gregory Peck, George C. Scott and Jason Robards, and even Debbie Harry, in projects as diverse as Tom Jones, Straw Dogs and, of course, the Star Trek films. I caught up with him during lockdown in late 2020 to talk about his role playing Keith Jennings in the 1976 horror classic The Omen. There you go. Can you see me now? Hello, sir. How nice to see you. Can you hear me at the back? Yeah, I could hear you. Uh, <laughs> a couple of things. Before, can we just uh, talk, you know, before we start? Yeah, about yeah, a couple yeah. Of things? That's, that's just, just a couple of things. You and I are really uh, not many of us who are honoured to be both in League of Gentlemen and Inside Number 9. And the other thing before we start, I wanted to mention. Oh, listen, you mentioned sometime, we only, look, we met briefly at Tenant, you know, Moffat uh-huh. evening, didn't we? That's all we've met. Do you remember the party of David Tennant? Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. That's yeah. the only time we've met. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you put put up there about doing Hangman with Reese, and you yeah. were interested, and I couldn't make it, and I didn't catch your Shakespeare either. But I did book and pay for a ticket for you at the court. Ah. But I was taken ill and couldn't make it. I want you to know that you're not ignored. Not no. that you particularly care about that, but I, I, well, but I have had many a sleepless night over that. I thought you might too, so I thought I'd put you at ease now. I thought, you know, he would have ridden a card if he'd enjoyed it. He yeah. would have come backstage. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I know. There would have been a bunch of flowers. Somewhere. I know. I know. Sorry about that. So, uh, David Warner, thank you for joining me on my podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Keith Jennings in the 1976 film The Omen. Which have you seen it recently? I have not seen it recently. Oh no. well, I saw it a couple of days ago, and it scared the pants off me. Still, still, yeah. I mean, the stuff in it from a honestly from the tension stuff is you know really gets you, and and we'll talk about certain scenes, but it was really still 
still worked on me. Just, yeah, I mean, do you class it as a horror film? Psychological horror. Uh, I, I think more of it as psychological hmm. uh, rather than horror. Because it does, I always, it, it does have the jump scare moments, doesn't it? It does. You see me, I'm naive. I, I think of horror as blood and slashing and all that. That's when, because I don't go to horror movies. They scare me too much. I saw one. Uh, and so it's, it just, it's not my genre. It's not my thing. So um, I, I don't think of it as a horror film only because it is the other kind, the more psychological, absolutely. The music and all that kind of stuff. And the idea that the, the devil has sent his child and put him in the, the middle of uh, US politics in order to become president, I mean, it's so far-fetched. Uh, uh, listen, I mean, I mean uh, we, look, we've got plenty of time. I could tell you a few things. That, well, we will go into that. Yeah, yes, all right. But, okay. I, but it's interesting. Was it never a genre? Horror was never a genre that you were in, into? No, it scared me as a it scared me as a kid. I saw one and I'm, I mean, I've done a couple. I've yeah. done a couple. So Hammer, Hammer House of Horror, that wasn't part of No, I did an amicus, which was Tales from Beyond the Grave. And I did a thing called Waxwork in America. And I did a little half-hour horror anthologies there. But it's not my thing. I wouldn't go out. I would watch them. I don't mean that. It's just, it's a way of earning a living. I mean, and I say that with all seriousness, but it's not something I would go and watch. If there's, I mean, I haven't seen American Horror Story or anything like that. Does, the, the whole title doesn't appeal to me. You know? But also, I mean, if you're going to do a horror movie, this is this is a great one to do. I mean, I it's, think it's, so. it's, it's really lasted. Of the genre, I do think it is, I mean, however, as I said later on, we may talk about however ridiculous much of it was, uh, it's still played with a straight face. I mean, we all played that, we played it so straight. I mean, can you imagine Vincent Price playing the ambassador? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> there, there, there was actually, um, I was looking at some of the stuff about it, some of the original casting for the uh, Thorn, the, the, the character that uh, Gregory Peck plays, was Charlton Heston. Uh-huh. Uh, Charles Bronson, God, it would have been a very different movie with Charles oh, Bronson. No, I mean, it was at one point, Dick Van Dyke was uh, in the frame, I think. Oh, I don't be... know anything about that. I don't know anything about that. Well, oh, by the way, you, you, just, you call him Keith Jennings, it's very, which his name is Keith Jennings. But mm-hmm. and first of all, the, origi- the original script that I got, was it wasn't called The Omen. It was called Birthmark. Oh, wow. That was the original title. Can mm-hmm. you imagine Gregory Peck in yeah. Birthmark? <laughs> Sort of doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't quite work. Anyway, I'm so glad they changed it. And also, my, the name of my character in the script wasn't Keith Jennings, and it was written by an American, and it was called Hayden Payne. Wow. I, I don't know many people called Hayden. No. Well, when the Americans write English characters, they do give us, I was offered a, a character called Florian Knight. <laughs> You know, I've never heard. I've never heard of anybody called Florian before. Well, I have. Sometimes I have great fun where I watch the credits on American TV shows because of the names, and they're all like, you know, just people called like Tuesday Mahelmahe or something. And oh, just, no, no, absolutely. But it's the it, the way the Americans think we have these now. A friend of mine, and I had to write it down. It was in a, in a film, and he was called Paisley Winterbottom. <laughs> Paisley, how many? That's what I was trying to say. That whole idea of, of and when I did Star Trek, uh, which which one was it? Five. I was called St. John Talbot, oh. you know. And Shatner said, "I think St. John is a good name to have, like a spell, Saint, you know, S. John. John, yeah. But uh, you know, St. John, we think they think that gives it the kind of gravitas that the well, the, if so gravitas, they cut the character practically out." <laughs> 
<laughs> so where did the name Keith Jennings come from then? Oh, I think we just said, would suggest another name. And either oh. I or my agent or somebody just said, how about Keith Jennings? So Keith, uh, anyway. So and when did you first hear about the project? What were you up to? Were you filming at that time or were you in oh, the theatre? No, oh, David, that's 40 long time. years ago. Yes, I mean... Uh, I was looking at my CV this morning just to see where about it came, you know. And I hadn't done anything particularly commercial up until that time, but I'd done a lot of uh, films of plays. Um, you know, I'd done um, Seagull. The Seagull, Midsummer, My Night's Dream, Doll's House mm -hmm. with uh, James, uh, Jane Fonda and um, a couple of other things. Little Malcolm and His Struggle Against the Units, which mm -hmm. is just a wonderful piece. Yeah. Uh, but nothing, you know, grabbing. So I don't quite know how I... It came to me. I always assume when a part, the only, there's always a list, which I would never be top of. So you always assume eh, everybody else was too busy. Yeah, and they get to or, you. Or they get, they get to, to you. Or, or there's another one. When, when I got off on a part and I thanked the director for casting me, he said, that's okay, you were the cheapest. You know, it was Carl I, Ryan. It was I often say Ryan. I'm the cheapest in my price range. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. Yeah, that's but also, you did start acting in the theatre, didn't you? I mean, did you make a conscious decision at one point to move into movies or was it just financial? No, I wasn't in a position, no, David, I wasn't in a position to do that. I became an actor only to get out the house. That is, I went to an amateur dramatic company and everything. I never had the bigger ambition to be an actor. Or an, it, so, um, no, I just managed to get into RADA and stuff like that. And the mm -hmm. start, my first job was... Um, my first job was at the Royal Covent Garden for 14 and sixpence. I was um, in the chorus. I was a Nubian slave in Aida. And how long did you do that for? Was that oh, your two, first Two nights, only two nights. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the regular, because I was at Raja at the same time. But your first job was with Tony Richardson, wasn't it? Not quite. If, uh, if, you're going, if we're going, right. no, my very first job on film was as an extra in a film called We Join the Navy. Mm -hmm. which were filmed out in France. And why they flew me out to be an extra when they could have got a... It was on a sh naval ship. It was an American ship. And I was an American sailor painting the side of a ship. Wow. And I was in the background for a few shots. It's, oh. it, do you know uh, Talking Pictures? You know Talking yeah, Pictures? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it pops up there occasionally. But I, I'm just an extra. And that was my first job and did a couple of extra work. But did you um, work with Tony Richardson in the theatre, though? That, that was a little bit after that. Okay. Yes, Midsummer Night's Dream, one mm. of the great flops that the Royal Court had. Having, you know, a, a, a Midsummer Night's with an extraordinary cast for the time. Um, you know, sort of, um, it was Corinne Redgrave, Lynn Redgrave, Rita Tushyam, Samantha Egger, all kind of film, young film people of the city. Nicole Williamson, the great Nicole Williamson, playing yeah, yeah. flute. Ronnie Barker played Quince. Colin Blakely played uh, Bottom. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it was an ex and it was the biggest flop ever that the Royal Court had ever had. But I played Snout the Tinker. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was as the result of that that I was... I assume, well, I do know a lot of actors turned the part in Tom Jones down, Bliffle, the ugly one. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it just, and it came, and I 
I read for the part. I didn't screen test and I got the part. So that was my first speaking part with Tom Jones, uh, Tom Jones the director by Tony Richardson. And were you n- very nervous? What was that first day like on film? Because obviously theatre, you sort of, if you've been to RADA, you know how theatre works. But walking on a film set, particularly of that magnitude with a with a huge star and stuff, what was that like for you on the first um, well, it was. It was, oh, I'm trying to think. I, the only thing I remember, if I can ramble a bit, on the very first day, if you, if anybody has seen Tom Jones, they know that I'm the half-brother of Albert Finney. And when when Tony Richardson described the part to me, he said, now listen, his, he had a strange voice. He said, now listen, Albert plays uh, this wonderful, gorgeous, bronze, lovely, heroic thing. All the women love him and all that. And you uh, are going to play the ugly half-brother, um, because you know, all the women run away from you. So Susanna York has to be almost sick when she talks. All that sort of stuff. <laughs> so I took first day, I thought, oh, I wonder what they're going to make me look like. So I went to uh, ask where the makeup trailer was, and I went to, and I knocked on the door, and I said, "Good morning," because they wouldn't know who I was. I said, "Good morning." So my name is David Warner, and I'm playing Blithel. And they said, "Hang on a minute, I've come for makeup." And they looked through the notes. And said, David, no makeup. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. No, you're like, no, you've got to put up like a big nose on me. A big, no, no, I thought it. maybe they'd sort of make me look ugly. Oh no! And so when when Susanna said, "Yeah, Mr. Blithill," ah, <laughs> no makeup. <laughs> so there we are. So as a result of that, I saw one day's rushes of it. You know the daily thing, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen rushes since. Oh. I wouldn't go. I you know the ugly one. And did that, but also did did people treat you differently because of the role you were playing? You know, if you're not the lead or you're you've got that call sheet that says the ugly one, the people's people's sort of uh, opinion of you. Do you feel changed? No, I, I felt quite welcome as a young. But first of all, I'd been at the royal court, even however briefly, in a flop, and a lot of the actors were royal court actors. I didn't feel particularly. No, there's no none of that which happened later in my career mm-hmm. but not my first film I, it was all fine I mean you did know, it feel like in an ensemble place to be? It, it, yes and I mean Hugh Griffith who was uh, you know sort of a, a wild man he, we got on so well Wolf, I mean I'm mentioning names forgive me I'm not being patronising I might mention names of people that certain members of your audience may never have heard of but you know round about that time people would and uh, <laughs> I was given to there was Wilf, Wilfred Lawson is, a, is, a, is an actor who I'm sure you know, yeah. uh, but his main reputation was um, drinking and, and being drunk on the set and all that, which he was Vivio. in the film. Yes, yes. Well, he was in the film. And Hugh Griffith was also a big carouser. And I enjoyed a little bit of carousing. Even though I was only 20 years old, I caroused a little bit. Anyway, I had lots of days off. And so did on one day, the little assistant director came to me and said, David, look, Hugh has got a day off today and Wilfred has got a day And you, will you men try and keep them out of the pub? Well, of course, I was in the middle of these two guys and they, they wished me from pub to pub. Yeah. I mean, that's... No, it, I, I didn't You feel, as a minder. I, I was their minder, their 20-year-old minder of these two absolutely, you know, relentless... You know, boozers. It was, it was quite fun.
Did you move into, because you, you went to the RSC quite soon after that, didn't you? Well, there's a kind of thing that's this is an old cliche about the size of a role can lead on to other things. Snout the Tinker is, is a nice little part as a mechanical, but as a result of Snout the Tinker, I got into a big film, which wins the Best Picture Oscar, you know, as a character there. So that was... Now, as far as the RSC is concerned, while we were waiting for Tom Jones to come out, obviously you have to work, and you don't know that it's going to be successful. Anyways, I was got a part at, for the RSC, had an experimental season at the Arts Theatre of new plays. And there was a new play called A Four Night Come by a man called David Rudkin. Peter McHenry was a star uh, and all that. And there was a kind of... Anyway, I had counted them. I was somehow got seven lines. Seven lines. I counted them. Very valuable seven lines in, in it. And we ran the play. It was a month run. It was an experimental thing. And Peter Hall, who ran the company, you know, came out to see everybody. We all shared a dressing room. He said, well, I hope to see you maybe at Stratford one day. And then as a result of the seven lines, I was invited to audition for the upcoming Stratford season. Uh, to play Henry VI, which is the, the, the title character in a, in a Shakespeare play, which nobody had ever heard of. And I, you know, I auditioned three times, and my agent called me and said, they want you to play Henry VI. I said, no. I said, no, 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 there's a mistake. I said, they want me to play the understudy. They want me to understudy Henry VI, because the Royal Shakespeare Company must have a lap who can play it. You know, they said, no. They want you to play, but there's a catch. You've got to sign a three-year contract, three years' work, you know, for a young actor. So, again, as a result of the seven lines, I get invited to audition and I get the part. Wow, that is amazing. It, it, it was extraordinary. It was. Well, and I thought, weren't you absolutely bricking it? I mean, weren't you just like, what the hell am I going to do? I mean, well, you're uh, catapulted into the lead roles it, in the it, RSC. It, it was, it, well, it was, how can I put it? It was so shortly after I came out of RADA, and what happened was, I mean, I accepted it, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one thing was that, that the part was not known, so it's not as like there was a whole history of Henry the Sixes out there that you had, were going to be compared to. Mm-hmm. And most of it was in blank verse. It wasn't like big... It was like, you know... So that's, that was a little bit... Yeah, but I went in as a young... You go, what, what am I going to lose? The only problem there eventually was when we started rehearsing was and meet the rest of the company was I was at RADA and I played Butler's old men character roles and some of my contemporaries there, uh, you know, played the leads or whatever. And it turned out that I was playing Henry VI and about half a dozen of the others were carrying spears. So you could feel there was that whole thing going yes, on. Yeah, the tension between that. It, yes, it didn't... It didn't um, it wasn't an easy time, but it was. But people like Peggy Ashcroft, you know, who yes. was playing with me, were just so supportive because I, I wasn't afraid to say to her and to a couple, I'm a bit insecure only because I can feel the tension. Yes. And they made me feel so relaxed and, and with her. And Peter Hall, of course, was very supportive. That thing of saying sometimes to older actors, you know, or more established actors or something, I'm nervous. That's quite a, it's quite a big step there. I mean, I did it years and years ago. I had my first job, there was an actor called James Hazeldean on it, who I loved. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, I was brash kid and I was sort of felt like I could do it. I was hard faced and stuff. 
but I was really, really bricking it. And at one point he said, he came up to me and said, you're talking very fast. And I said, I just talk like that. That's how I talk. And he said, I know, but I can't, I can't hear you. And and then he said, are you nervous? And I, said, and I eventually said to him, yeah, I'm shitting myself, you know. And mm. he just was able to say to me, so am I, you know, that's, it's natural. That's okay. Let's get beyond those nerves. And that just being able to share it with another actor. No, 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 absolutely. No, no, you're quite right. I mean, yes, but mine was more not to do with performance, but it was to do with more of the atmosphere around. Uh, right. I, I, that I explained to you about some of the kids there. Right. I mean, they weren't being mean or, well, one or two were, but I mean, in the main, that's not what I remember. And the other thing was that the company there had all been done rep, years and years of weekly and fortnightly rep, and, and I hadn't. Mm-hmm. I'd come, it was as if I'd been plucked off the street and popped into the big Royal Shakespeare Company. Point there was I had auditioned for rep and never got in. Mm-hmm. I'd auditioned and auditioned and never, I'd never, I've never, I've only got, I, the only role I've got as a result of an audition was Henry VI. Mm-hmm. After that, when in the future, you know, as we go through, and I auditioned, I've never got the part through an audition. Never. And I really was um, a bad auditioner. So. I think rep is really interesting because people don't, but that idea that you will rehearse a play in the day, perform another uh, play in the evening, and then that. and then you're on this rotor of just constantly. But for brain training and lines and stuff, it was, it was I presume, no, it was no, amazing. it must be. But the thing is that, I mean, what I'm saying is a few of them say, well, we've done 10 years in rep and look at, yeah, is that, yeah, that, yeah, and yeah, that yeah, happens yeah. more and more now, I'm sure, you know. Yeah. Yeah, as definitely. far as young people coming in from nowhere and more. But you came, you stayed at the Odyssey for a while, and obviously you very famously played Hamlet there, and, you know, it was called the Hamlet of that generation. Oh, God, and stuff don't, like don't that. get me going on that one. You brought I, it up. <laughs> yes, but what I'm interested in, it was, was the, in the theatre world, certainly in the RSC world, was there a, did they look down on the film world or certainly the American film world? Was there a sense that, you know, this is art and this is where we should be and this is where actors belong and you shouldn't be over there doing that? No, I never got that feeling at all. I mean, uh, no. I mean, um, I went off and did a film called Morgan, which was a very... Yes, yes. That's right. Uh, And uh, no, no, that wasn't... People wanted to go out. I mean, at, at that time, people like Ian Holm were in the company. You know, mm-hmm. Helen Mirren were in the company. Mm-hmm. You know, look, look what happened. You know, mm. no, I, there wasn't that snobbish thing at all. I, don't, I, I wasn't aware of it anyway, right? Um, at all of, of, of we are, we are the great, you know, sort of purity. You know, that's dramatic good. purity. There was not that feeling at all. That's great because sometimes you can. Uh, you hear that that is that they will look down on sort of TV and film and, and particularly television. I think at that time it was seen like you know, it was the, the poor man's substitute, really. Well, yeah, no, no, certainly no, no. I mean, not, not when you get Dinah Rigg going in to do the Avengers, yeah, you know, I mean, during that time. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd done a bit of telly, I did telly with Bob Dylan. I don't know if you know, anything yes, that. I wanted to ask you about this. You've worked with Bob Dylan and Debbie Harry. Oh, I mean, yes. Uh, oh, Roger Dolch. Oh, people uh, I work with, you mean? Yeah. Oh, Scylla Black. Scylla? Yeah, Scylla. Yeah. <laughs> My God. But what, what did you do with Bob Dylan? Oh, well, this is, uh, 
Uh, have we got time? We've got yes, all we've got, we've, got, we've, got, we've got as much time yeah. as you want, but the, the no, Bob Dylan, oh, we've no, got time. No, oh, no, you get me going here, and I'll try and be as brief as I can, though. No, what happened was I got a, a call saying um, they've had a bit of a problem with a BBC project, and I don't know why me. I, I've not hardly done anything, but... I'd done a Z cars, and maybe as a result of that, they thought of me. What happened was that a director called Philip Savile yeah. was directing a piece called Madhouse on Castle Street, and he had been to the village in New York, and he'd seen this guy in a in a in a cafe singing that singing some stuff, and he was a young kid, and he thought it'd be dead right for this production called Madhouse on Castle Street, which was a lot of dialogue by this. Beatnik at that time was a beatnik guitar playing guy, but the songs were written by the the author Evan Jones, and he, and he had lots of dialogue, and he and he broke into song, and he did all this kind of stuff, and uh, so Philip Savile thought, oh, this is great, um, uh, this this is the band, you know, he was only eighteen or whatever, so somehow he got Bob Dylan and his manager to fly to England to start working on on rehearsing this thing. And evidently Dylan, who was sort of, shall I say, when I, you know, spent time with slightly out of it, but in my opinion, out of it because he was going through, he was writing songs in his brain all the time. And uh, he got there and, and opened the script, which he obviously hadn't read. He said, I can't do this, I'm not an actor. So then panic happened, evidently. And so they decided very quickly to split the part into two beatniks. One who did all the talking and the other who sang the songs on cue. When, when my character said, sing, Bobby, and then, then he'd sing. <laughs> and that's what happened. So but that's how I worked with Bob Dylan. And now I've got I to need... find that. I want to find that. Is that still... Well, it's just a great, we did a whole arena program. It's a great lost tape. Oh. It's the great lost tape is the number one. Madhouse on Kai. If anybody of your listeners knows any old person who happens to have recorded it somehow. Wow. So we, we did it. It was an appeal to try and we, we, we did that. And so, but but do you know the payoff of this whole thing? Well, well, um, you know, so Bob Dylan sometimes didn't turn up to rehearse because he, uh, he got lost somewhere or whatever and, and uh, didn't turn up at his hotel to sleep and all that. So Philip said, took him into his house to say, we've got a spare room space so you can, you know, turn up. And uh, he would try out new material on the babysitter. And uh, one of these things was blown in the wind. He was playing on the stairs. And Philip said, oh, that sounds good. Maybe we could put it into the play. So, uh, so that's... So, yes, so they agreed to put blowing at how many rows was in my where to put it in the play. Well, it didn't fit in with any of the dialogue or anything. So, so what, what happened in the end, how it was resolved was the play happened and then it was coming to its resolution, the whole piece, and I was standing there and Dylan was sitting on the stairs and whatever the last line was, and then I just took and I said, sing, Bobby. How many roads? And that was the first public um, ever of, of that song. And it's been lost. And it's been lost. They oh. wiped it. Do you know something, David? They wiped it five years later when oh. Dylan by then had become something of a, of a name. I don't understand any of that. I mean, it's the politics or whatever. I don't understand. Oh. Anyway, I'm quite thrilled to be part of that. And then Silla Black, of course. 
Yeah. And then, and then, um, oh, the, De- I, the Debbie Harry, I saw, I saw the, uh, there's a great clip of you and Stacey Keach where you're giving Stacey Keach hair. You're like a hair restorer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's just, and Debbie Harry's there as well. It's just uh, a great, great she, scene. She's gorgeous. She's lovely, you know. I mean, you, you'd done quite a lot of stuff before The Omen came along. I mean, you'd worked with, you know, Lumet's. Sam Peckinpah, you know, Peckinpah, Jane Fonda, Joe Mercy. Yeah, you've done that, oh. but but um, Richard Donner, he was he was sort of a TV director, wasn't he? He wasn't. This was a big break for him, wasn't I it? I think so. I'm not sure. I didn't really know much about Richard Donner. I mean, at all, mm-hmm. except that he had a, a nice personality, and and he, um, yeah, no, so. I, no, I don't know whether it was... But did, did it matter to you that he was... A, I mean, what were the criteria that you were choosing work oh, from that, at that no. time? What, what, what was I looking for in a direction? Yeah, mean, what were you I, looking for no. in a script? What were the criteria you were choosing work I, I, by? I was never, ever in a position to really go there, David, mm-hmm. to say, well, I'm looking for this or that. If, if No, I, it, it was a good part it, with Gregory Peck and Lee Remick. Right, yeah. Uh, In a a, a film called Birthmark. (laughs) But it was a no, it was a job. I mean, honestly, I mean, I you know, we know of certain actors who kind of feel plot their careers, and I don't mean this derogatorily. Say Ken Branner or somebody. You know, he he, he's got. I'm no confidence, by the way. I'm totally unconfident. Somebody like Ken Ken or Sir Ken. I'm, you know, has it mapped out where he goes? I'm not like that. Whatever comes along, comes along. I think Johnny Hurt, who's often mentioned on your podcast by actors, I was at drama school with Johnny, and uh, and there's another deviated chap, but but not for now, maybe. Um, called himself a letterbox actor. It drops through the letterbox, you open it, and rather than saying, "Where's my career going to go? How am I going to?" I mean, the idea of me go, going to the Rada and saying, "Well, I'm going to play Hamlet in three years at Stratford," yeah. it wasn't quite on the cards, you no, know. It no. was no, I was taking it. It did happen. Yes, yeah. yes. We'll be back with more chat after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time with me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. But that's good that you said about confidence because I, I suffer with confidence a lot. I, I really have great sort of insecurity and that thing of looking at myself in the mirror thinking, I can't do this. I can't, I can't go out there. Both, with- but both in stage and film and TV, I, I suffer terribly from confidence. What, um, how do you combat that? Is that something that you just deal with and get on with it or what? Well, um, it's only later on that I started to lack confidence, mm-hmm. but whatever, for whatever reason, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I got stage fright for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I was off the stage. I, and I did a play in 1972 and didn't come back until 2000. Mm-hmm. What did you come back with? Major Barbara on Broadway, <laughs> yes. can you believe? God. Do you know that play? <laughs> I do. Well, I played Undershaft. I mean, it's a huge, huge so you, role. You didn't come back in under the radar then? No, I <laughs> didn't. I went straight on Broadway. I mean I, I, I mean, I just don't know how that happened. Some, yeah. some, well, I mean, I know why I got stage fright. It was nothing to do with any anything that happened on stage. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't that. Something happened, which we found out later what it was. Right. I, but I, I did the shoot. I did a stage version of I Claudius. Yes, you or did. Jacoby Dittes, uh, mm-hmm. with the blessing of, of Graves and everybody, and he was there at rehearsals and all that. Directed by Tony Richardson, mm-hmm. uh, huge part on for two and a half hours because I I narrated the play and then stepped in and out, so I was on stage for the whole thing. That was all fine. It was a flop. Nobody came to see it. They put it off. But then about a, a month later, I went to see a play. I remember what it was. It was Twelfth Night with Dan Massey playing Cheek or whatever. And I sat there. And I started to perspire. And I said, how can they stand out there in front of all these people? How do they learn the lines? Aren't they going to... And I, as a member of the audience, I panicked. And I had to... I didn't flee the theatre, but I I just left at the interval. And I was sweating. And I wasn't able to go on a stage for for 30 years. It's strange because you sort of... The minute you entertain those thoughts or you bring them in... They can, they can so, they're like ink in water, aren't they? They can suddenly become so, you know, incapacitating in a way. Being an actor as well, though, you're constantly looking at character and you're putting yourself, I mean, I remember thinking a couple of years ago of the situations I've been in as an actor that I've had to perform. Obviously, I'm pretending and I'm putting myself into situations which are total pretense. But my body doesn't know that. My body, my, my body is still getting the signals that I'm being attacked by someone, or you know, I'm sort of you know angry or whatever. They're still getting those those things. Really, I don't. That's you mean. You mean it affects you playing yeah. a, a character. That's interesting. It's never affected me in that way. People yeah. ask me, you know, don't you take it home with you? Whatever. No, never. That's really. I'm very envious of that. Never, no. Well, that must mean I'm not really engaged and I really am pretending. I'm no, not, I, th- I don't think that. I think there's a self-protection that you have, because I've spoke to many actors who are like that, that you have a self-protection and a security around yourself, which is really good. I sometimes, that self-protection isn't there. And I have this strange thing about I need to be authentic. And in order to be authentic, I need to suffer. And actually, I got rid of that a number of years ago. But as a young actor, that's what I thought. Uh, So there's a residue of that still around for me. 
I mean, on the stage, you can't play Romeo and Richard III and be too affected by what, no. what the characters are going through in the same day. Yeah, you, you, don't, know, want to be, you don't want to be taking Titus Andronicus home with you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or, or, yes, or, you know, I mean, I, I played Hamlet and Ague Cheek in Twelfth Night on the same day, which is a great double, you know. I mean, it's a wonderful double to do. So, you know, they talk about uh, what... what uh, Olivier did the Puffin, Puffin Oedipus, the, yes. the great double, you know. So to, to play Hamlet in the afternoon and Aguecheek at night was, was just a wonderful thing. But you can't take Hamlet with you into Aguecheek. No, no. And it's a great thing to get rid of it. it exactly, really exactly. Interesting is because when they asked me to do Aguecheek, we've been doing Hamlet for a couple of years. I don't want to talk about Hamlet too much. No, but no. but um, um, when they said Aguecheek and Hamlet, I said, lovely. But then I realised, even at my early age, my stamina wasn't all that good, and it never has been, but I managed mm -hmm. to get through it. I said, I can only do Hamlet in the afternoon and Aguacheek at night. I couldn't do Aguacheek in the afternoon and then do Hamlet. And they, they, they were able to do that for me. Anyway. But we talk about this, uh, the sense of the, you know, the emotional side, but what about the practical side? I mean, when you're on a film set and say... The, the leading actor is you're rubbing up against the leading actor or the director or the producer or stuff like that. I mean, I know we have agents. Do you try to use your agents as much as possible to negotiate the sort of practical side of the job? Can you clarify what you actually mean there? So in, in, sometimes you'll be on a set and uh, a leading actor is not turning up or is behaving in a bad way or the director is suddenly being an ass or, you know, the producer is saying to you, look, I know we said you were going to get off next week off, but we're going to have to bring you in even though you're under, not under contract. Absolutely. I mean, do you ever take people on face to face? Uh, uh, well, no, I'm non-confrontational in that area. I've, I've worked with three actors who made life hell for me and a couple of directors. There's nothing my agent could have done because I wasn't, they were the stars mm -hmm. and I wasn't. I was number two or three banana. So you don't call your agent and say, tell them, I won't say, give any names. No, no. <laughs> you know, not to, not to. You know, please could you ask them to rehearse with me? Uh, you know, you can't do that. Uh, please could you ask them not to walk off the set when I want to do my bit and all that kind of stuff? Please ask them to be there off camera. But you just chalk that up as experience and think, well, well, uh, uh, well, I have to because there's nothing you can do about it. If you mm -hmm. are, you know, if they're the star, if they're, the, you know, if they're the star and they're treated, you see, this is what angers me more than anything else. They're the star, they're successful, they're wealthy, they're award-winning, they're this, that, and they treat you like shit. Well, you know, thank you. It's, it's. I don't know because I'm not a con. I'm not confrontational. So I never, no, it's no point in me calling my agent. They can't do anything there. So I've never had an agent have to go in and do anything. No, right. I haven't. You know, that, you know, they gave me the job full stop. I mean, yeah. if I'm having problems of my own nature, they'll come and be with me and help me. I've been with the same agent um, for 60 years. That's great. I don't trouble them too much. Great. I mean, nowadays, if, if I get a call, I say, well, what do you want? <laughs> but, you know, because um, in theatre, you, you we rehearse for like five weeks, four or five weeks. Mm -hmm. But quite often on a film set, you can be walking onto a film set and doing a major scene and you haven't met anybody. You know, you sort of got in, you 
pitched up the night before you've been in some hotel. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, how do you just sort of have to get on with that? How do you how do you get yourself up for those things? Um, I'm trying to think here. Uh, you just well, in fact, you trust you've you've read the script, you've seen the script. Uh, you met the director, and bearing in mind that in film mainly, I didn't play the big, huge leading role. I mean, I'm, a, as I say, third or fourth banana, which mm-hmm. suits me absolutely to, to a T. I have no problem there. So it was just a question of uh, how how well and how relaxed the director would be and your fellow actors. My big difference for me between British actors and American actors is how they think about time. I get very stressed on a film set about time. I'm very conscious of time, of, of, the, of the call sheet and, and how many scenes. We've got. And when I work with American actors, they tend to, on the whole, it's a bit of a generalisation, have no concept of the time of the day, of, of how the day runs. They, they know what they want to do, but they're not mm-hmm. thinking about the, the production and the time that it needs to take. And I think I have a real people-pleasing thing about the schedule. You know, I will look at a, score, a call sheet and think, well, I've got three scenes here, but God, they've got six scenes. So, I've, you know, I've got to be conscious of that are you conscious of those absolutely i'm i'm with you 100 percent on that absolutely um i mean for me it was an unwritten and maybe wrong thing that i have to i have to be make sure that that day's work for the director and the and the company ends and i i don't stand in the way of that i would see myself as part of the company yes absolutely to to achieve what we all were there for Absolutely, absolutely. What do you think of reviewers, critics? I mean, before I became an actor, when I was in amateur dramatics and stuff in Leamington Spa, 20 miles from Stratford, I used to sell newspapers in the book department of a department store. And that was what I did for about four or five years. Then I went to Radama. Cut two years later, I was somewhere and a man came up to me and introduced himself to me as Michael Billington, the critic. Famous reviewer, yeah. We won't fool you. And he said, excuse me, he knew who I was. He said, did you ever sell newspapers in Dumbington Spa? I said, yes. You used to sell me. (laughs) I used to sell him. I used to sell him, um, you know, the Beano. I don't know what it was that that he was slightly. uh, So that's, you know, Michael Billington. And I thought, oh, well, I I met him now. And I'm going to, if ever I do theatre again, I wasn't planning to, he'll he'll give me good reviews, won't he? (laughs) Anyway, I did did Lear at Chichester. (laughs) And he he didn't think much of it. I mean, I bumped into him. Oh, no, no, he became a friend. I mean, I haven't seen him for a while, but he used to drive me from London to Stratford on opening nights with his wife and you know, and, and stuff just as as, as me. But he, but when we he still, he, and I'd played Falstaff, he didn't really like that either. But I think it's rather, you know, here's me thinking, oh, I'm quids in here with Michael Billington. Didn't quite work that way. Right. And the other one was, um, after Hamlet, um, there was a guy who, who um, was a, a critic for something who hated my work. And when it was announced, or my work, when I say it like that, he'd hated me in something. Mm-hmm. He wrote... And he found out that I, was, he, that I was going to play Hamlet, and he wrote this article about me, saying, if this actor plays Hamlet, blah, 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 playing like a snivelling little snot-nosed kid. I don't know what he said. And I, you know, um, 
didn't take it very well. We hadn't even started <laughs> rehearsals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He'd said he was quiet. Anyway, we owned Hamlet, and it was the second... We were in the Oldwich Theatre, and we, Patrick McGee playing the ghost. We went to the pub, and I walked in with Patrick, and there, a man sitting in the corner, big man with, with fist-like hands, who was huge. He got up, and he's red faces. It's you! And I didn't know who it was. And uh, Patrick said, David, get out, get out, David. He, and I, I got into the street and waited for Patrick. And it turned out that it was this critic who hated me so much. And I went <laughs> in for a drink with Pat McGee. <laughs> and, uh, you know, actor attacked by critic. You've heard it <laughs> the other way around. You <laughs> heard it the other way around. He and hated he, you that much. He wanted to kick the shit out of me. He hated my work. He hated me so much. You must have reminded him of some childhood trauma or something, I like don't some know, school bully. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. <laughs> anyway, so that's my critic. That's right. Uh, but re- reviews, they, it's just part of the actor's life, I guess. Um, yes, yes. I mean, yes. I mean, I, I, I don't remember getting really any fantastic reviews as a mm-hmm. stage. <laughs> Actually, people get respectful on film occasionally, they say. Mm-hmm. Turn. No, I don't. I've never had rave reviews for, for any, of any, anything I've ever done. And working with, you know, great actors, people, you've worked with Gregory Peck, obviously, but, you know, before then you'd work with Jason Robarts, who was one of my favourite actors, uh, and, yes. and, then, and you'd worked with George C. Scott, I think, by then, or was that after? No, that was after. That was after. Working with actors like that, yeah. when you're walking onto the set with to meet someone like Gregory Peck for the first time, what's that like for you? Is that... Well... The first meeting, I think, maybe had been a handshake with Gregory Peck. And you I, became I, quite close, didn't you? I mean, we, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, how do you know that? Or did you just... I think I, read, I think I read a thing of you saying that, you know, he was a, a good he, he friend. He was supportive during the time, for professional yeah. time. Yeah. More than anybody else except for Jason Robarts, mm-hmm. who became a good friend afterwards and during which I'm so thrilled that those two particular guys, regardless of all the, the people who haven't liked me, mm-hmm. those two have to like me. So well, I thank you for that. You understand what I mean. But also so, you had to do together, you had to do, because there's a whole thing in the film about the Book of Revelations. <laughs> and it's all bollocks, really, isn't it? It's written by Selznick. It's not, it's not, it's, it's completely imagined. But there's a great scene between you and Peck on the roadside in France going reading off to a, a t- petrol station, I think. Reading several different Bibles and cross-referencing stuff. And you have to come up with this stuff. And it's, you do it brilliantly. One of the things about the film is everybody is so straight. Um, we did get on well, obviously. I mean, you know, because he, he revealed to me that he he'd seen a couple of things I'd done, and so he liked my he liked my work, and he'd heard things, I good things, you know. So he, and so we were ch- able to chat. Then I got pulled aside one day by one of the many producers, and he said, um, "Yeah, well, we've noticed that you've been spending a lot of time in between takes." talking to Mr. Peck, and we don't know if that's why. I think to them, he's the big star, which he was, and I'm a supporting British character actor who really should know his place. I suppose that's where we're yeah. going with that. 
So I said, Greg, <laughs> I said, listen, I've just been, am I, I said, am I spoiling your concentration? Am I, am I, uh, so what do you mean? And I said, well, I've just been told I'm spending, spending too much, too much time talking together. Or am I interfering with your concentration? Then he realized that there was this feeling that, that I was a lower class supporting British support, and that he was the star. So he made it his job to make sure that everybody knew that he wanted to talk to me in between takes. Right. David, can you come, you know, all that kind of thing. Come here, I want to ask you something, you know, all that, all that. That's what the kind of man he was. He knew that I could have been in an uncomfortable situation. Mm -hmm. But he made it absolutely Sure. He gave you license to approach him and telling everybody else that that was okay with him. Uh, absolutely. Then I, yeah, the great thing, well, there are many great things about Peck, which again, I can talk about, you don't have to use. Mm -hmm. um, there was one scene in, in the film, as we are talking about the owner, where he gets the news uh, that Lee Remick has died. The scene in the hotel room, we're mm -hmm. both in the hotel room. Now, again, him being aware of this friction that he felt that they were extending towards me, in front of the crew, he said, um, this is a ladies and gentlemen, I said, um, and Dick Donner, and, you know, this is quite a difficult scene for me, he said, to play. And I'd appreciate a bit of time. He said, I would like to be able to talk to David about this because I think that with some of the things he's done, he would be able to give me some. And he went on like this. So then I wonder if you mind clearing the set for five minutes while we do a little chat. So he cleared the set. He said, you know, just, he said, we'll give them five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so just let's get rid of everybody. Get, and you get and rid of, get, 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 again, building me up. That's so I mean, lovely. You cannot... Um, yeah, I mean, you you know, you get bad things in, in your career, but these are just so, to me, I, even thinking about I haven't thought about this for a long time, mm. you know, until you said you were talking about it. It moves me tremendously that, that mm. somebody should take that effort for another actor. But also, you know, also what happens is it transfers onto screen. So what you see on screen is a relationship between two people who don't know each other, but they have to have a trust of each other very quickly. I mean, because, you know, let's face it, a lot of what you're talking about is quite hokum, isn't it? I mean, it's it's quite, it's it's in a horror film like that, you're trying to make sense of stuff that if you scratch the surface of it, you might think it was quite laughable, but you play it so straight that we go, oh, this is important stuff because these yeah. two people who are very serious, very close, are taking it seriously. Oh, no, absolutely. We never, no, no, there was only one time. I mean, we, there was only, it was kind of, there was only one time that Peck uh, um, kind of let that feeling out where, where before it, because he would whisper to me before a take. I mean, it just, it just put me. I mean, you won't believe that it's true. Right. And and, and, it, and there was one scene that's always to do with a jackal being the something, I, I can't remember. And he said to me, if we can convince them with this bullshit, we all deserve Oscars. <laughs> the job, isn't it? That is fantastic. What I love about that is that you don't, Imagine Peck to be like that. That's I mean, the whole point. He, he sort of, he has such a stately sort of, you know, 
serious uh, impression about him, which works for the film brilliantly. Oh, I mean, yes, yeah. Well, that's, sorry, that's why I said when Lee Remick said, not a mm. load of laughs, I knew now what it was going to be like. I mm. mean, because I had don't keep much memorabilia, but I happened to be leafing through. So I did have, do have some photographs of us in between takes. And in every single photograph, he is laughing or smiling. Mm. And you don't expect it. And that was the whole point. Atticus yeah. Finch, yeah. you know, or, you know. But those lovely one-liners, oh, after this, I've got to go to Switzerland and I'm going to have to avoid David Niven again. You know, that kind of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff going on. And, and so there was never, um, you didn't have a big premiere? You weren't sort of no, next to square? Or... I don't know what happened. Maybe there was a premiere, I wasn't available. I'm not a premiere person. No. I, I don't feel comfy at them. But sometimes don't. you don't have a choice, do you? You have to make an appearance at those places. Oh, certainly. I mean, yeah, some of the, yeah. I mean, I've had, but, but the films I've made, there aren't many of of um, big premiere worthiness. Right. I think Titanic was. Hmm. Uh, and at the time, the O-Men didn't, they didn't know what, you know, I don't know. I don't remember a, a, anything like that. But, and uh, so, what was the when you first saw it? What was your impression of it? I mean, because that that would have that would have been the first time you saw it with the Jerry Goldsmith score and stuff like that, wouldn't it? What was your? Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. It's a very interesting question. Mm. I must have been thrilled. <laughs> I mean, I must, you know, to be, uh, and especially it did become a box office for the time. Yeah. A big box office success. Oh yeah, no, it was one of the highest grossing films of '76. Uh, I mean, yeah. it was it was right up there. Um, yeah. the, the, it was made for something stupid like two million dollars, yeah, and, and it and it grossed in its first year sixty million. So you know, it was a great. You and know, then, of course, it had the four you know yeah. spin-offs. because it's one of the most. It's such an iconic death in film history mm. it's a it's like the the death scene is so sort of it must have followed you around rather but i mean were you present on that day were you because obviously there's a whole special yeah, effects so, thing happening and stuff like that um i think i was i don't know whether i said i don't want to watch it but then that was all the cutting because we were in jerusalem for the beginning mm. of it that that whole sequence and then the and then, and then we were in Shepperton or Pinewood for the, the, the lorry and the, obviously the sheet of glass. Um, I didn't, I don't, I think I kind of superstitiously said I, I don't want to actually watch. I wasn't, I don't think I was there. Most probably I wasn't there. Actually. No, I was wondering whether yeah. you were there actually. No, I, I know that Because the cutting done. is so yeah, brilliantly it, done. Well, yes, from, from Jerusalem to Shepperton, you know, all in what you know. All in, so I don't think I was even there for it. So and do you I, remember the when you've, your first impression when you saw that, when you saw, because it, it, you must have seen it so many times now, but I mean, when you first saw what they did with that scene, were you sort of amazed by it? Well, of course, it wasn't a surprise to me. No, I know. You see what I mean? No, 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 of course you know that. Well, what I'm trying to say is it did shock everybody because they weren't expecting it. So I suppose... I was I was knew what was going to happen, so it wasn't quite a, a oh there oh yes that's the head I you know I I sat for an hour getting a, a head made you know with straws up my nose to get but a, it's you know. but it's one thing to read it on the paper it's a another thing to say and I use my words advisedly but you know the the execution of it <laughs> I, I mean what when it's such a spectacular piece of editing and and structure it's just amazing. Oh, no, absolutely, man. No, absolutely. And to, 
but again, maybe I'm just sort of laid back. I don't know. But do you know what I mean? I wasn't quite a, a impre- too impressed. I don't know. No, it was extraordinary. But but um, what I, I suppose- love about the film is is that. Uh, how Patrick Troughton is killed, Lee Remick when she falls. Yeah, yeah. You know the bit he because it is it's a it's quite a serious wordy film. You know, there's a lot of stuff going down, but he does the big moments. Yeah, fantastically oh, no, he's brilliant. Yeah. Oh no, 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 absolutely brilliant. Um, um, oh no, as I say, of his genre, uh, mm-hmm. of the genre, I just think it's it's it, it's good. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm very proud to have been in it. Yeah, you know, for all the reasons, mm. you know, and um, and and having that that time with this extraordinary man. I'm going to tell you something. Um, um, I, I wear cravats in it, uh, um, mm. and that's because I have um, had had and have psoriasis. Uh-huh. You know the skin problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to upset anybody listening to this, but I had it in over ninety percent of my body, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, you know, unsightly and, and, and uncomfortable and everything. And, of course, because we changed together, Peck knew about this. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because of the character of, if you didn't know already, the character of Gregory Peck. And you, were out, you did mention, so the film is out and stuff happens. Well, about when the film came out, I got a letter from Peck, and he had sent with me some, some brochures. And he said, there is a new treatment that is an experimental treatment, which involves blah, 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 blah. Unfortunately, there's only one to help to help mm-hmm. cure or, or continue. Unfortunately, there's only one place in the world that's doing this. <laughs> Milwaukee. Now, there's only, now, Milwaukee has nothing, according to him, except for breweries, which would be very glad he said. He said, I urge you to think about this. He said, if you're short of funds at the moment, Yes, I can see your reaction. I'll pay your airfare. I've got the letter. Wow. And and when I read it, because this is very uncomfortable, if you're really covered with it, it's very... The whole idea of reaching out eight months later to say he would pay for my treatment, I mean... That is so wonderful. I'm only saying this to anybody listening, just to show the kind of man that he was, especially those of us who sometimes have a problem with, with fellow actors. Not that we all do all the time, but sometimes. I think it is important to talk about the solidarity that we share because it's an odd job. It's it's a strange job. You're away from home all the time. You're sort of insecure. I mean, I think it's wonderful that you spoke about your psoriasis because I think that thing of, you know, you're on show all the time and it didn't stop you. You know, you still carried on working and, and it's it's a very vulnerable position to be in as an actor, and I think there there has to be a solidarity amongst actors of understanding what each of us are going through. There was one thing I wanted to ask you: you, when you were asked to do, I think it was uh, Christmas Carol with George C. Scott, you yes. were asked to play Marley's ghost, and you Correct. said, "What I'd like to do is play Bob Cratchit." Correct. Why did you make that? A, how, why did you make that decision? And two, how did you go about talking to producers and directors about swapping roles? Right. Well, first of all, Cratchit is a better role, and to me, in my opinion. But I always, because I played a lot of heavies, mm-hmm. I desperately wanted to play Bob Cratchit. I mean, when when, when the script played, I said, "Oh, so it's you know." Now I didn't talk to a director; my agent 
it turns out 60 years, Julian Bell, he did the talking there. And and uh, it somehow they bought it. They what bought I love it. about that is the fact that sometimes we can get stuck into a certain way of people seeing us and we say, oh, I'm always doing this. Actually, it's up to us a bit to sort of change that picture, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, if again, as a supporting actor down a little bit, I mean, I'm not putting myself down. I know no. where I stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, it's a, you know, it was a gamble. Uh, to to do it, but I just felt I really, I, but, but because I play heaviest, and because I just thought this would be wonderful, I wanted to show that I was a little bit versatile, yeah. you know, <laughs> not always saying kill them and get him, you know, whatever. So, and it was just a lovely part. And of course, I, then I did get to see, again most of my time in George Scott's trailer, wow. playing Trivial Pursuit. Yeah, great, I mean the, the image she's got an image of a, and he is gruff, but. He doesn't have to be gruff with everybody, and he wasn't with me. And it was like, <laughs> you know you, what I'm trying to say. <laughs> didn't you say that during, uh, you played Trivial Pursuits with him, and there was lots of questions about General um, Patton, and, and he said they were all wrong. <laughs> yes, he kept saying, "No, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong." Brilliant, David. We we are going to wrap up. It's been such. A, I could talk to you for hours. I hope we can meet up and just carry on chatting. I've got so much to ask you. Oh, please, anytime, anytime. So many other things. I mean, uh, listen. Let's get together soon. It's been such a pleasure and thank you for doing this by the way i know thank you for asking me david i I mentioned it ages and ages ago and it's just taken us quite a long time to get around to it but god it was great thank you so much for asking me david good luck thank you mate all the best i'll try and get out of this now it says bye 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 Bye, who am i this time is a just voices and Dulali production Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.